welcome to the Nerd Party. Time for a retro perspective. Hello and welcome to Retro Perspective, the show on the Nerd Party where we take a look at all of the movies released 25 years ago this week. I'm Mike. I am John. And today we're going to be taking a look at a couple weeks worth of movies, specifically May 6th and May 13th, 1994. Yes, and then we'll be all caught up. We are yeah. We're going to be caught up after this, yeah. Until probably next week, but you know, whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it work. Yeah. We'll make it work. So the first movie came out on Wednesday, May 4th, and it was a little movie called Baby Fever. Uh, I watched the trailer. Did you yeah. watch the movie? or? Nope. No? I watched the trailer. That was good enough for me. Yeah. It yeah. was about a bunch of people who have baby fever, apparently. Apparently yes. not very good. Only got 36% on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, sounds like it basically made no money at all at the box office. Yeah. So, yeah. Seemed like one to dodge. Yeah. So on Friday, May 6th, we had one, two, three, four, five movies. Five movies. Okay. So uh, number 21 at the box office, uh, bringing in $48,000. And uh, getting 100% on Rotten Tomatoes is mm. That's Entertainment 3. Yeah, which I could have watched, but these are just clip movies, right? Yeah, right. So they just, they're just they just showing stuff you've seen before. But like, I mean, honestly, this is what a testament to like how things have changed in terms of, you know, the landscape of theater being something to draw people like you could get away with releasing something like this mm-hmm. back then, I guess. I, Nobody would have the cojones to, to release this now. I think that they, well, they got theatrical releases, but I think more than anything, they were kind of like, like I think they played on like PBS, like that sort of thing. And I do remember when they were on, like being very impressed by all of the sequences being in the original aspect ratio that stuck out mm. to me back then because most things weren't, but uh, never watched them, so yeah, no. Yeah. All right, number twenty at the box office, bringing in point one million dollars, with fifty-seven percent positive on Rotten Tomatoes, was Dream Lover, starring James Spader and Imagine Imagine Amick, Amick yeah, from, from uh, Twin Peaks, from Twin Peaks, yeah, yeah. Did Did you happen to watch this movie? Hard pass. No. Uh, No. Well, I did because... uh, Oh! (laughs) Well, do tell, Mike. Yeah. What what was it all about? I mean, how could you not, right? I mean... Mm. It's, 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 How well do you know me, Mike? Okay. What what about that preview made you say, you know what? That's a movie that... Okay, listen. uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I I was going to say that's the one qualifier is I probably will double back to this one at some point because... I had such an of all of the um, actresses that were on Twin Peaks, Madchen Amick was probably the one that I had the biggest uh, fan crush on. Yeah. Like I just, I just thought she was it beyond her looks. I thought she just had a, um, you know, based on her interviews, she seemed to have a fun personality, seemed to be grounded, sort of thing. So you know, at least that's what I constructed in my head. So there you go. Yeah. 
Well, you yeah. can watch it for free on Tubi with a limited commercial interruption. So that's good. So just like television back in the old days. Yeah, but fewer commercials. And all of the uh, R-rated goodness intact. Oh, okay. That's a plus. Although I'm not 100% positive that it's HD, to be honest. So whatever. We we live with what we have. Yeah, at the very least, it's yeah. the original aspect ratio. Just like that's entertainment. <laughs> but yeah, this is a movie where James Spader plays a guy who just had a, he just got divorced and it wasn't like a tremendously unpleasant thing, but it was just kind of, you know, whatever. And, you know, his friends are trying to set him up with people and everything like that. And he meets Matchin Amick sort of by chance and she is the girl of his dreams and they very quickly get married and start a family and then he starts to realize that she has a past which she did not reveal to him and Mm. then things start to spiral into really weird directions and, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's your typical sort of like 90s erotic thriller in a lot of ways. Uh, performances are good. It's got like a little bit of weirdness in it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think like compared to a lot of these erotic thrillers that we've seen over the past few months, like it's a little bit more progressive than than those were. And, um, yeah, I. I, I would recommend it. It's good. Oh, I guess I missed the boat on that one then. I, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I mean, James Spader, this was sort of like his niche for a little bit, too. Yeah, he had, well, Sex you know? Lies and Videotape, this, and then uh, right after this it was Crash. So, yeah. yeah. But then there was also later on was Secretary. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so this seems to be Spader's Ultron. comfort. Oh, very, it definitely belongs in that. Uh-huh. In that yeah. the the unspoken love triangle between Ultron, Tony, and uh, Vision, uh, yeah. Vision, yeah, yeah, let's say Vision. There you go. So, yeah, actually, Vision is sort of like the love child of Ultron and Tony, isn't he? Yeah, I remember when like they were do when they were like, oh, Age of Ultron, you know, they was coming out, and they're like, oh, uh, you know, what's it? Paul Bettany has been cast as Vision. And I was like, that's dumb, because he's the voice of Jarvis. They should have cast him as Ultron. And then it mm-hmm. turns out that, oh, no, that, that actually makes perfect sense, the way that they use Jarvis. And But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing which always seems strange to me about that is, like, in the like pre-Age of Ultron, like, Paul Bettany was like, they're like, you're the voice of Jarvis. And he's like, yeah, I am. And they're like, oh, you, you know, what do you think about that? And he's like, I've never seen the movies. And I always thought that was strange. Why do you think that's strange? It just seems strange that this guy who's, you know, sort of like a part of the series is just like, I, you know, I didn't. Yeah, but like, but like Jarvis's part is was probably like three hours of work per movie tops for him. Sure. Where it was just like, just say, uh, give me five different takes of, okay, Tony, or your back thruster isn't working, you know. But like, you'd think like, oh, well, I'll go to the premiere or something, you know. Yeah. Why not? But no, it's yeah. just like, I mean, everyone else has seen those movies. 
you know, it's weird that he hasn't. So anyway. Oh, that's true. All right. What can you do? <laughs> so moving on. Uh, number 19 at the box office with $0.8 million is Being Human. With, yes. With 54% on Rotten Tomatoes, starring Robin Williams. Did you watch yes. this? I did watch this okay. because I was very, very intrigued by the, the the trailer. And then I, you know, I read the synopsis. And it is a really interesting film. It's not a particularly good film. It's not something where I would say, oh, you got to see this. But, I mean, it's, you know, Robin Williams in, in a dramatic role. You're always going to get a good performance. But the cast in this is absolutely, you know, John Turturro's in it and um, Hector Elizondo's in it. And uh, the basic premise of it is you meet this guy at the beginning. It appears to be like Montauk uh, in New York that he's, you know, on the beach and you hear these kids talking. And then you go through this series of short uh, stories where you have this female narrator saying things like, well, what type of story is this going to be? And you see Robin Williams play... Not a caveman, but a pre-civil, you know, an early civilization guy with a family. And his family is taken from him, and he is not brave enough to go and confront uh, the people taking his family, um, which includes uh, a young Robert Carlyle and even a Ewan McGregor <laughs> uh, there. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and they... Um, they take his family away, and then it flashes forward, and then he is uh, named Hector, and he's a Roman slave, and John Turturro is his uh, master, who's a uh, you know in a in bad business dealings, and things go sideways, and he's having an affair, and his master embroils him in this business mess uh, that goes on. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but then it. It goes forward to the next story where he is part of a shipwrecked Spanish galleon um, with settlers who wind up on the shore of Africa. And his ex-wife is there with her new husband and he has to leave her and he's trying to and she hates him. And so he leaves and he's lost in the desert. And then it comes to the modern day and you see him as you saw him at the beginning of the movie. And he's this put upon divorcee who's trying to reconnect with his kids. He's in New York. His business partner played by William H. Macy isn't the greatest guy and he's being thrown under the bus and he had these bad business dealings. And what you come to realize throughout the whole film, and I guess this is sort of a spoiler is it's all been this metaphorical telling of this guy, Hector's life sort of imagined in a fairy tale form by these kids he's trying to reconnect with. And so it get, it gets points for creativity where it's like that's a really neat concept. I really like that. The problem is it doesn't quite gel and it has trouble with the connective tissue. I think actually the presence of the narrator um, hurts it more than anything uh, to the point where I talked with somebody who had seen it. I said, oh, yeah, so, you know, being human. And they said, oh, that's that movie that's weird where he's reincarnated several times. I said, no, it's a metaphorical telling of the guy. And I realized the movie doesn't really communicate. I could be completely off base with my interpretation, but I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. But 
I think that speaks to the trouble that the movie has establishing its, um, you know, its reality, establishing its its storytelling style is that two people could see the movie and have completely different interpretation of what it was trying to do, but not in a good way. In a like, no, wait, it's that. No, it's that sort of way. Yeah. Well, it sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's kind of cool to, that that they would essentially allow him to play, in, in essence, like different characters throughout, you know, history or whatever, or, or the same character or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept. It is. I, it is. Yeah. All right. I, I wouldn't call it bad. It's not bad. Yeah. It's just not particularly good. Okay. All right. That's, that's, sounds fair. All right. So so now moving into the sort of the mainstream stuff for the week, we've got two movies that were released. One ended up at number five at the box office with $3.1 million and 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that is Clean Slate starring Dana Carvey. Yep. Did you watch this movie? No, I did not rewatch this movie. Oh. I saw this movie a very long time ago. And as everybody knows very well, there are two strata of Saturday Night Live cast member movies. Blues Brothers strata and everything else. Mm-hmm. And this is everything else. Yeah, it looked like sort of a not very good version of Memento. In a way. <laughs> In a way. Yeah, okay. I could see that. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's weird. Like, a lot of these, like, really popular movies, I mean, not really popular, but, you know, movies which are like that, you know, they have, like, terrible reviews. And that seemed to be, like, a thing. Like, I don't know whether critics were just more jaded back then or, or whether movies were you know, mainstream movies were worse or it was harder for things to find an audience. But like now, you know, Endgame, you know, is, you know, like 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. But back then, like the big blockbusters, you know, whatever they be, let's just say Godzilla 1998, you know, I mean, they had terrible mm-hmm. reviews or even Independence Day, you know, this is strange. I think smaller pool of critics. Maybe. Honestly. Yeah. Could be. All right, so the top movie for the week at the box office, coming in at number three with $3.6 million and 15% on Rotten Tomatoes is Three Ninjas Kick Back. Did you watch this? I did not. Even after your fascinating telling of the fact that this was shot third and shown second. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. No. I don't know. I remember I saw the first three ninjas movie on video when i was a kid but i never saw this one so i can't say that i felt the need but it was number one at the box office yes it was well number three number one for the week or number four i guess actually i was like oh it was number four yeah but okay but number number one of the movies released this week so okay yeah all right yeah yeah all right so moving on to May 13th, I mean, well, I guess just for May 6th, I mean, sounds like, you know, maybe that's Entertainment 3 was the movie to watch, I guess. But uh, <laughs> Dream Lover and Being Human, uh, pretty much in line with what uh, the critics are saying, it looks like. So, all right. Yeah. Okay. So May 13th 
we had six movies. Uh, the first one, number 21, uh, making $90,000 and getting 38% on Rotten Tomatoes is Trading Mom. I watched the trailer for this. Mm-hmm. I did mm-hmm. not watch the movie. Did you watch the yep. movie? I did not. Did you watch the trailer? I did. It looks crazy. It's Anna Chalumsky. Chalumsky? Clums- I, th- I think it's Klumsky. Klumsky, who grew up in the same town that I did. I think we were probably in junior high together. I don't know. Anyway, she uh, stars as a kid, I guess the, the oldest of the siblings, who are sick and tired of her mom, played by Sissy Spacek, telling them to do chores and stuff like that. So they wish her mom a- away, and then they go to the mom market to get a new mom, but things don't really work out too well, and it sounds like sooner or later they realize that their mom is actually pretty great and and that they get her back, I'm guessing. Spoilers. Maybe I should show this to the, you know, everybody for Mother's Day every year (laughs) or something like that. I don't know. There you go. Maybe. I, I don't know. Hmm. Um, number 20 at the box office with $0.2 million and 94% on Rotten Tomatoes is Widow's Peak. Did you watch this? No, I didn't. It looked intriguing. Uh, it's one of those, you know, Miramax movies, the ones that, you know, sort of were geared towards the maybe like older little old lady crowd. And it's about yeah. a town where there's a bunch of women living there and they're all really happy because all of their husbands are dead and now a younger woman moves to town and it seems like maybe she wants to be a widow too, maybe so much that she's plotting to kill her husband, something along those lines. It looks like kind of a dark comedy. It looks like it could be pretty funny. Uh, you know, I, I just I, I didn't watch it because I was not... Whatever, but I wouldn't have been opposed to watching it if I needed to, you know. Yeah, it wasn't like a principled stand. It was just a question of winnowing down by uh, time. I had a, I had an early front runner for what I was going to visit okay. this week. So, all right. Yeah. Well, number nineteen at the box office with half a million dollars was a million to one, which got sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and. It's, as I understand it, a modern retelling of a Mark Twain story. Yeah. Uh, about a guy who gets a million-dollar check, and without cashing the check, without even knowing whether or not it's real, everyone in his life starts treating him with more respect and giving him things which maybe, you know, he um, isn't quote-unquote, worthy of because he doesn't have the money that they think he does. Yeah. You know, yeah. one of those one of those things. One of those things where it's about how society views you based on material possessions and all that good stuff. Yep. Did you watch this? I did not. Okay. Looks intriguing, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. Okay. 
Now moving into the to the major releases. Number five at the box office with four point two million dollars and seventy six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Crooklyn by Spike yep. Lee. Yeah. Did, have you have you seen it before? I have seen this before. As have I. I didn't rewatch it for this. Me either. But I've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. Um I, yeah. I was never really a fan of this one, I have to say. Um, I, it's okay. I don't really remember it very well. I saw it in a class where we watched all of Spike Lee's movies, and um, I just remember it uh, have, like being sort of weird tonally and, and maybe not quite um, as engaging as some of his other work. And the only thing that I really remember that really stands out to me is that it, even though it was shot in one eight five to one with spherical lenses, there's like a sequence where she has to like the, the main character who's a, it's a little girl living in Brooklyn, yeah. you know, and she has to go visit her like cousins or something like that who live like in the suburbs or something along those lines. And in order yeah. to show that it's like a completely different world, which is really weird and everything, they shot those sequences with anamorphic lenses. And then when they were projecting them, they just took off the lenses and projected them with spherical lenses so that everything was like squished together. Yeah. Kind no, of that's, a weird that's a choice. That's a great technical note. Yeah, um, didn't really work. You know, it's okay. Uh, like I, I remember watching it um, years ago and I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on video, you know, years afterward I thought it was all right. Um, you know, it, it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, I guess sort of like being human where it's like, yeah, you know, it's good. It's interesting, but I'm not telling anybody you got to run out and see this. Yeah. I mean, as far as like Spike Lee movies are concerned, I think this is one of his lesser works for sure. But uh, yeah. Yeah. so number two at the box office. And this is kind of weird because like out of all these things, like if I hadn't seen any of them, there would be two that would be standouts where I'd be like, I have to see those. And but I had seen those already. So number two, with eleven point eight million dollars and eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes is The Crow. Yes, The Crow starring Brandon Lee. Yeah. In his final film performance. Yes. Um, did you watch this one? I did. Yeah. I revisited The Crow. Me too. Yeah. So what'd you think? I didn't think as highly of it this time. I think that uh, this is a film that I remember at the time being caught up in the craze with it, even having a poster for it, um, hmm. you know, on my wall and everything, just because I like the character design. Also being familiar with the comic that it's based on, which is way more brutal and darker than the this final film wound up being. Um, and the soundtrack for The Crow, I think, stands as one of the finest of the 90s. Uh, just a terrific compilation disc uh, to put on with a tremendous, tremendous array of, uh, of talent on it. It's, it is something where I think that once the production had the tragedy happen, likely this was the best it was going to be um, with what they had. 
and um, it's very stylized. There are some very interesting moments in it, but it's a bit of a jumble at parts. So, you know, it's it's good, but it's not as great as uh, younger John would have told you. But what was your reaction in coming back to it? Yeah, I missed the the craze by you know about a year or two. Like I I, I was just starting to get into comics, and I remember seeing the ads on the back of like every single comic that I bought for like yeah. two months. But uh, I didn't go to see it in the theater or anything like that because I probably couldn't because I was only fourteen. But even with that, you know, even after people were saying like, this is the comic book movie that, you know, you should be looking forward to, you know, while I was watching Batman Forever and everything, I didn't really have that much interest in it until Dark City came out, which was also directed by Alex Proyas, who Mm -hmm. directed this one. And I loved Dark City. And it was at that point where I was like, I need to go back and watch The Crow. And I didn't like it back then. So like 98, 99, like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt the need to revisit it. And I I did this time just because it, I, I, I figured like, well, it's been 20 years. People say that this thing is a, a masterpiece and everything like that. They talk about how gorgeous the photography is and stuff. You know, I, it's time that I give it another shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still didn't like it. You know, it starts up and there's like a couple shots like that, like that. Well, I mean, like a helicopter shot, but I think it's probably a model of like the yeah, city, like on fire and everything. And I'm like, oh my god, this is gorgeous! Like, how could I not like this movie? I'm, I'm gonna like it this time for sure. And then mm-hmm. the movie starts, and I'm just like, uh, this isn't well, really I, working. I, yeah, it, I mean, it's there's no shortage of style about it. Yeah, the photography is um, gorgeous. It's shot by yeah. I think the guy who shot Seven and everything, right? Yeah, so. it it looks it looks beautiful, um, and you know, for for the time, the stuff that they pulled off with the digital effects of of mapping Brandon Lee's face onto, um, I think it was his training partner filmed. The, the scene where the crow comes back to the loft and he start and he puts on the makeup and, you know, he's like swinging around and everything. And then he's standing in the window with the crow on his shoulder. Um, the face is completely in shadow and then they have a lightning strike. And that was where they mapped over uh, Brandon Lee's face. And, you know, for the time, it it's impressive. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't notice it at all, but. Yeah, and it's, you know, because they didn't, like, map it over the face the entire time. It's just these lightning flashes, so you're not given time to focus on any imperfection about the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, like, I, I mean, even even back when I first saw it, even when I was more forgiving in my opinion of it, um, there were still moments of, uh, like, sort of... Uh, process errors in terms of where certain scenes happened with relation to others where it was like no this would have been better later wait why is she recognizing that now i think this should have occurred later um and i think that there were you know i somebody asked proyas because there was talk of a director's cut i know there's a work print floating around out there and somebody asked him point blank i think this was back in like 2004 you know would you go back and do a true director's cut because, you know, obviously this was hampered by you wanted to get the picture finished, you wanted to be done with it. 
And Proyas in 2004 said, I'm never coming back to this. It's way too painful to revisit that time in my life. I, I no, yeah, no, hard pass. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I, and, and yeah, I mean, you can tell that like things were missing. I mean, like just the way that the, the movie starts and maybe this was the way it was intended, but I kind of don't think so. But just like the idea of like, it starts up like after, uh, you know, he's killed and it's like, mm-hmm. like, you know, you see his, his, you know, fiance die and it's like, okay, like I was confused. Like, is she, it's like, is she the, the soul which is being reincarnated here or whatever, you right. know? And then you, know, you see like, oh, okay, well he was killed too. And it's like, I, I, you just, it feels like there's stuff missing for sure, you know? But yeah. Um, just to correct myself, you know, I said that the cinematographer Darius Wolski shot seven. He didn't, but he did do um, like Dark City, Perfect Murder. Romeo is bleeding from earlier this year, and oh. uh, he's done uh, a lot of things with uh, Ridley Scott. He did a bunch of stuff with Tony Scott, but he's done a bunch of stuff recently with Ridley Scott, including um, Prometheus and The Martian. Oh. And uh, hmm. he also shot The Walk. He's done a lot of 3D movies, like shot in native 3D. And he's, I would say, probably the best in the biz when it comes to that. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, it's interesting, though, because, uh, you know, sort of looking at it with uh, some other eyes, you know, it's very much in the tradition of, you know, Batman in 1989 is the one that kicks the door open for movies like this to be made. Yeah. You know, not everything has to be in the Superman mold anymore. And what's interesting about this one is it's in some sense, I I realize like when he goes one scene for years that I, I loved, but man, when I watched it this time, it did not have the impact that I recalled it having was uh, when he goes into top dogs meeting with, you know, Everybody's sitting there unnecessarily cocking guns and throwing money around in a very comic booky sort of like, oh, we're bad guys. Ha 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 ha. Um, I thought that scene, I like I always pointed to it because it's got the music from my life with a thrill kill cult playing over it. And I was like, this was a great scene. And I watched it this time and I said, yeah, OK, it's all right. Yeah. And it's that was pretty much my reaction to a lot of it. And I, I just think it's. um it's a shame um, because I think there was something great in the DNA of this, but it just didn't have the opportunity to reach fruition. Yeah. I mean, you look at like dark city and it, it does feel like sort of like a lot of the, the concepts, even if it's not like the same type of story, but you know, visually and everything, uh, a lot of the ideas that they had in the crow were sort of, fleshed out in that and I think mm-hmm. uh you know that's a better movie and this is kind of a mess but whatever oh well yeah uh so okay the number one movie at the box office this week was when a man loves a woman this was back when Every movie was named after a pop song from 20, 30 years prior. And I say that, but I mean, like, Michael Bay's new movie is called uh, Six Underground. So, you know, 
whatever. I guess nothing has really changed. <laughs> um, so this movie made $13.2 million and got 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. It stars uh, Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan, I think, right? Yeah. About mm. uh, a couple in love, uh, mm. but she's an alcoholic and they deal with that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Did you see it? So it's like uh, Days of Wine and Roses. Sure, you know. Oh, that's that's a. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh, that is that's a Jack Lemmon movie from back in the the sixties. It's a black and white movie, I think. Um, yeah, it's black and white. Um, you got to see Days of Wine and Roses, okay? Uh, because that deals with a couple that they're drinkers, and um, you know that basically come to realize that they're alcoholics, and how the relationship shakes out. Uh, when that you know comes to bear and everything, it was a great, great film. Highly recommend that one. Have no idea if when a man loves a woman is any good, but uh, oh, here's an interesting you know. thing. It was uh, co-written by Al Franken. Who knew? Really? Yeah. Huh. And Ronald Bass, who wrote uh, "What Dreams May Come" and "Rain Man" and "Entrapment." So <laughs> interesting. Anyway, I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll never. Yeah, it's it's hard to get me to uh, to watch the heavy romantic stuff. I, I won't lie. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a really hard sell for me. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we're not going to have to worry about it next week. But I guess this week, I don't know. Is there anything necessarily to recommend? I mean, we're I think we're both saying the crow is not really worth it. Crooklyn, maybe not. <sighs> You know, I would say that the the Crow is if you haven't seen the Crow, it's streaming on Netflix right now as we're recording this. It is worth looking at if you haven't seen it just to understand. I think that it is definitely an important work in the sense of how comic book movies develop to where they are now. Yeah. I, I so I, I think from that perspective I I'd recommend it. Yeah, you can see like a pretty clear line from Batman to the Crow to Blade to X-Men yep. to Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's pretty much it for May 6th and May 13th. May 20th, there are two new movies, those being Even Cowgirls Get the Blues mm-hmm. and Maverick. Yeah, which I saw back in the day. Did I give myself away that I liked Maverick? I did. Oh, well, it happens. It happens. Yeah. Mm. Uh, But until next time, John, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, gosh. Look for Kessel Junkie. That's my name. Uh, You can find me occasionally on Twitter, mainly on Letterboxd and Goodreads. Uh, Trying to keep writing at KesselJunkie.com. So come on over there. And here on the network, you can hear me co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with Matthew Rushing. And as a special treat, I'm going to tease it right here. Right around the 20th anniversary of the release of The Phantom Menace, there's a commentary track that's going to be dropping on Aggressive Negotiations. Is it for Attack of the Clones? No, it's for The Phantom Menace. Okay. Just assume. You know, if you want to, if you really want to. You know, surprise people. 
Hey, Attack of the Clones is coming. Don't you worry. Okay. Don't you worry. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's where they can find me. Where can they find you? Uh, well, you can find me on my website, filmdamagepod.com, doing a show called Film Damage. Haven't done much with that lately because we've been busy over on Trek.fm doing a show called Tracks from the Edge, which is just ended. But we did just do a special super duper Star Trek 2009 10th anniversary special, uh, the first part of which is out now, and the second part of which, if it's not out yet, will be out very soon. So uh, take a look at that over on Trek.fm. And you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K. So uh, that's it for this week. Next week, only two movies, one of which isn't really available anywhere, unfortunately. So uh, be sure to come back then and hear us talk about one of those movies. And until then, be kind, rewind. Rewind.